This episode is brought to you by Milano Cookies. Look, sometimes that long Zen yoga class is just not in the cards. So maybe a cookie is. Pepperidge Farm Milano believes you should make some time for yourself once in a while. I know I have a particular space in my sewing room that I like to just take a few minutes every day. I sit there. I think about things. It's kind of like meditation and munching at the same time. You can get that yummy, beautiful cookie flavor. It makes it luxurious and delightful, and I always feel recharged. Milano cookies are truly a treat worthy of your me time. They're delicate and crispy with luxuriously rich chocolate in the middle. You really want to keep these just for you. So remember to save something for yourself with Pepperidge Farm Milano. The future is closer than you think, and it all starts in the palm of your hand. You may have heard the news. 5G is coming. In this new iHeart series, This Time Tomorrow, presented by T-Mobile for Business, join me, Oswald Oshin, and my co-host, Cara Price, as we walk you through the true revolution in mobility that will change the way we interact with the world around us. Join us and hear just how close we are getting to a more connected future. This Time Tomorrow is now available on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you listen to podcasts. Today's podcast is brought to you by Squarespace. Make your business official with Google and Squarespace. When you create a custom domain and a beautiful business website with Squarespace, you'll receive a free year of business email and professional tools from Google. It's the simplest way to look professional online. Visit squarespace.com slash Google to start your free trial. Use offer code WORKS, W-O-R-K-S, for 10% off your first purchase. Google and Squarespace. Make it professional. Make it beautiful. Beautiful. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy B. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. On September 9th, 2016, people incarcerated in prisons all around the United States went on strike to protest, among other things, forced and virtually unpaid labor. And a lot of the reports about this strike in the news, I mean, they varied very widely in terms of the scope and the size of the strike. But one thing they have in common is that seemingly unanimously they mentioned that September 9th was the 45th anniversary of the start of the Attica prison uprising. And then that's basically all they say about that. Attica is a well-known enough name that a lot of people do know that there was some kind of massive and violent incident there and that it ended really horribly. But unless you've done a deeper study of the justice system or civil rights history, that Uh, Or maybe pop culture references to the Attica chant from Dog Day Afternoon, which even that I had to look up which movie that was from. (laughs) Like, I've heard people chant Attica and not even I had to go figure out like. yeah. Well, I'm thinking there's also a cartoon that used to run on UPN and then Cartoon Network called Home Movies and they did an Attica chant in it. But it probably is referencing that. Yeah. The Dog Day Afternoon. Uh, Yeah. And that so that pop culture reference might be where that knowledge ends for folks too. Uh, I mean, my informal poll found a lot of people who had the basic sense something bad happened, but not any of the details. So we're going to fill in some gaps today and next time. Even at two parts, I want to stress, this is really an overview. Whenever we do something that by nature has to be an overview, like we have, we'll get lots of letters that say something along the lines of, you missed this and this. And I'm just... 
The official report of the New York State Special Commission on Attica is 574 pages long. And Heather Ann Thompson's Blood in the Water, which is an incredibly thorough history of the uprising that just came out in August of 2016, 752 pages long. My original outline for this was like 10,000 words long, which is way less than any of that. And like I even had to shorten that way down to get it into a two-part podcast. So... This is a basic overview, and we're going to look today at the conditions that made Attica Correctional Facility so ripe for an uprising. And then in our next episode, we will talk about what actually happened over those four days that started over September 9th, 1971. This is an event that really started out confusingly before it became really complicated and chaotic. And by the end, I mean, I would it's horrific and unconscionable, so be prepared. Attica Correctional Facility originally opened in rural upstate New York in 1931. It was, at the time, the most expensive prison ever built in the United States, with a price tag of about $9 million. Built in part by labor from Auburn Prison, about 100 miles away, Attica was specifically designed to mitigate the threat of prison uprisings. There had been several high-profile incidents across the U.S. in the decade before Attica was built. And in addition to its contained cell blocks, each isolated within its own yard, it was surrounded by a wall that was 30 feet high and 2 feet thick, which extended 12 feet underground and was topped by 14 gun towers. In terms of its overall design, Attica followed the same basic model as the first large-scale prisons in New York. These were founded in the 19th century around the idea of rehabilitation through work and silent reflection. In the original 19th century model, small single occupancy cells were primarily used for sleeping. From sunup to sundown, the incarcerated population worked in silent labor. The only day they were mostly confined to their cells was really Sunday, which also included an address by the prison chaplain about the redemptive value of hard work. And the idea that you can rehabilitate someone by sentencing them to years of dawn-to-dusk silent labor had some problems of its own. But besides that, in the century and a half between those first prisons being built and Attica opening its doors, life behind bars in New York changed dramatically. But the design and the structure of the prisons really didn't. The six-by-nine-foot cells originally designed simply to be slept in were instead used to confine people for up to 16 hours a day. For new arrivals at the prison, it was up to 20 hours a day for four to eight weeks until their processing was complete. Each cell contained a bed, a toilet, a sink with cold water, a stool, a small table, and a two-drawer cabinet. The only source of warm water was a bucket delivered each evening to be used for washing up, shaving, cleaning the cell, rinsing clothing, and washing any personal items that weren't issued by the prison. In three of the cell blocks, each cell had three solid windowless walls and one wall that was made of iron bars. In the fourth cell block, there was one small window in the back, and the door was solid metal metal with a small grilled opening. As a side note, there was a fifth cell block by the time that this uprising we're going to talk about happened. E-Block, which was built in 1966, housed the Division of Vocational Rehabilitation, or DVR, which was initially intended to provide rehabilitation services for people with physical disabilities during their incarceration. Conditions at the DVR were quite different from the rest of the prison, and it's really the rest of the prison that we'll be focusing on. 
Although Attica is a maximum security prison and it is actually still in use today, that does not mean everyone incarcerated there in 1971 was a dangerous person who actually needed extra security. New York had way more maximum security beds than it did medium or or minimum security, and that was especially when you compared the amount of space in the prisons to the actual rate of convictions for crimes. Also, a lot of the lesser security facilities were only open to men under the age of 30. So frequently, men incarcerated in New York State prisons wound up in maximum security, no matter what they had done or how old they were or whether it was their first offense. Attica and other maximum security prisons housed men serving short sentences, as well as ones who were imprisoned for life, for crimes that really ranged all over the spectrum. More than half of the people in Attica in 1971 were serving a maximum sentence of seven years or less, and only 62% had been convicted of violent crimes. Compounding this basic issue of math was the way the criminal justice system was operating in New York in the 70s. Crime had been increasing dramatically in the United States. Between 1960 and 1970, the violent crime rate increased 126%, and it kept climbing, although somewhat more slowly, all the way until the early 1990s, before falling pretty consistently since 1994. People have a perception that crime is rampant, but it is actually quite lower than it was during the period we're talking about. Even though a lot of crime in the 60s and 70s went unreported or never led to an arrest, the court system in many states was still incredibly overtaxed. And in New York, for example, there were about 32,000 felony indictments a year, but the courts could actually only handle four to 5,000 of those. To keep this incredibly overloaded system moving, courts relied on plea bargains, which is when a person who's charged with a crime enters a guilty plea, usually in exchange for a lesser charge or more lenient sentencing. If you watch a lot of today's uh, crime dramas on TV, which, I mean, to be honest, those are my guilty pleasure when I'm traveling. (laughs) I Often, even maybe most of the time, plea bargains are presented as the defendant's best option and a good way to get a shorter sentence guaranteed instead of running the risk of a longer sentence at trial. That was not at all the sentiment among people facing criminal charges or prison time in New York in the 70s. The state's reliance on plea bargaining was viewed as hypocritical and dishonest, as though the state was not actually interested in justice, but was just trying to clear its plate. Plea bargains also led to people getting wildly different punishments for the same exact behavior, and to people who really had committed more serious crimes pleading to a much lesser offense and then being incarcerated with people whose crimes were relatively minor. These disparities and many others related to race, culture, and economic class made people moving through the criminal justice system incredibly cynical long before being sentenced to prison. In 1971, about 2,200 men were incarcerated at Attica. 54% were black, 37% were white, and 8.7% spoke only Spanish, with the Spanish-speaking population being predominantly Puerto Rican. 80% of the people incarcerated had not finished high school, and most of them were from impoverished areas in New York's major cities. And we're going to talk about what life was like at Attica, but first we are going to pause and have a word from one of our sponsors. So, you know, yesterday I took a a 7 a.m. flight back from a wedding. Uh, 
while I was setting out my clothes the night before, I made sure to lay out a pair of MeUndies. Because when you put on a new pair of MeUndies, it's not that it's just fresh and nice and new. You're stepping into a better day. A lot of times, underwear is the first thing on, the last thing off, and a long day. Why would you settle for anything less than the best-feeling underwear on the planet? MeUndies focuses solely on producing the most comfortable underwear you will ever wear. Our friends at MeUndies have sent us a few pairs, and, I mean, if I've got a tough day, I cannot imagine putting on anything else. It really makes the day a lot better. For the price of a couple of fancy coffees, MeUndies will deliver a new favorite pair of underwear right to your doorstep. Better day guaranteed. Try them on, and if they're not the most comfortable, best-feeling undies you've ever had, they will refund you and let you keep that first pair for free. Included in the price is the Sweet Touch of Modal, a special fabric made with best-in-class raw materials that are scientifically proven to be three times softer than cotton. These uber cozy undies are sold exclusively on the MeUndies website, where you'll enjoy free shipping in the U.S. and Canada. And for a limited time, everyone in our audience gets 20% off their first order, but you need to use our special URL, MeUndies.com slash history. With the MeUndies Better Day Guarantee, you have nothing to lose, so don't wait any longer. Go to MeUndies.com slash history right now for 20% off your first order. That's MeUndies.com slash history. To get back to Attica, in New York, as in many states, the prison system is part of the Department of Corrections. And in the years just before the uprising, New York and this department had actually changed the language that it used to talk about the prison system. Prison became correctional facility. Guard became correctional officer. Warden became superintendent and so on. But these changes were really in name only. The department was not really focused on correction or rehabilitation, especially in maximum security. What the primary purpose was, was keeping people securely confined to prison. Conditions at Attica and New York's other maximum security prisons were degrading and they were dehumanizing. Some of the prison's practices were humiliating on their own and others were smaller day-to-day indignities that eventually added up. It can be easy to think along the lines of, well, prison is not supposed to be fun, but this didn't make prisons safer or more efficient or more effective. These conditions did nothing to lower the rate of crime or reduce the rate of recidivism after people were released. And some even encouraged ongoing criminal behavior while incarcerated. Yeah, if you if you feel like prison's point is to make people miserable for a period of years and then put them back into society with less than they had before... They were doing a great job. <laughs> but if you feel like prison should help overall lower the incidence of crime, it was not helpful. For the most part, what the conditions at the prisons did guarantee was that people re-entered society after their release with fewer resources and fewer job skills than they had before they were incarcerated. And it also came along with an even greater degree of cynicism and bitterness toward the justice system based on the experiences of being imprisoned. And a lot of these humiliating and dehumanizing and really counterproductive conditions were the ones that specifically became a part of the negotiations during the Attica Uprising in 1971. So we're going to kind of walk through what some of these were. So if you were incarcerated at Attica, your life was governed by a set of rules that seemed arbitrary and petty. Although there was a rule book, it was not consistently distributed to new arrivals, and it didn't actually list all the rules, and it wasn't available in Spanish. 
The most common punishment for breaking rules was being, quote, keep-locked or completely confined to your cell. As long as you weren't keep-locked, on a typical weekday, you spent roughly 8 to 10 hours out of your cell. About five hours of that time was devoted to work or school. School was required for anyone who tested below a fifth-grade education when they were incarcerated at the prison. The rest of the time outside of a cell was devoted mainly to meals and an hour or two in the exercise yard, weather permitting. Time in the yard was a little longer on weekends because work assignments weren't happening. Many of the work assignments were tasks that basically kept the prison running, such as janitorial work, or making and serving food, or making uniforms, keeping the grounds, unloading deliveries, and the like. Pay for most positions was about 30 cents a day. There were also a few jobs that were created in part with the idea of providing workplace skills for a productive return to society. One of these was in the metal shop, which made shelves and other furniture for sale to other state agencies. Regardless of where in the prison you worked, there were probably way more incarcerated men assigned to the job than were actually needed to do it. This is a practice that was commonly described at the time as feather bedding, which is not a word I had heard before researching this. Feather bedding meant that a lot of the work uh, was actually pointless busy work or redoing something that had already been done, like remopping the same stretch of floor you had literally just mopped. You would have no privacy, not even for using the bathroom. Even though you had to conduct visits with your family through a mesh screen, you would be strip searched before and after. And that search included an examination of your genitals and body cavities. So if you wanted to talk to your mom through a screen, you have to have a body cavity search before and after. With only a few exceptions, you only got to shower about once a week and you were allotted one roll of toilet paper and one bar of soap per month. You could buy more at the commissary along with other basic necessities, but the commissary's prices did not reflect the fact that you probably only made 30 cents a day. The commissary was also prone to running out of stock, and since your commissary day cycled through the whole prison before starting back at the beginning of the list, if they were out when you needed something, it could be quite a while before you even got another chance. Unless you could afford to buy lots of food from the commissary, and the commissary had what you needed when it was your turn to make a purchase, you didn't get enough to eat. The food at Attica was not sufficient to meet federal dietary standards. Also, the commissary sold lots of food that was meant to be heated, like canned soup and instant coffee. But methods to heat that food were not allowed. Because of the big disparity between the prices at the commissary and the rates of pay, unless your family could afford to send you money, you were probably going to make ends meet through hustling. That might involve, among other things, trading cigarettes for services that were part of your prison work, smuggling contraband, making moonshine, drawing and selling explicit artwork, and sex work. If you got sick or hurt, your treatment was likely to be delivered in a callous and even insulting way. For example, if you said you had a headache, the doctor might ask you how you knew you had one. Because there definitely were people who faked illness to try to get out of work, the medical staff generally treated everyone as though that's what they were doing. Care was mostly limited to treating excruciating pain and preventing the spread of contagious disease through the prison. Preventative care was non-existent, and care for chronic conditions was extremely limited. Vacancies among critical medical staff were also extremely slow to be filled, and in the meantime, the prison just did without them when there was no one there. 
If you needed psychological care or treatment for a substance addiction, there was virtually none available, with the psychiatric staff mostly being devoted to parole hearings and appointments for other purposes filling up months in advance. Dental care was also minimal, with many people eventually losing teeth due to a lack of adequate care. Recreation, of course, was limited by the weather. Winters in this part of New York are harsh, and the only recreational facility was the exercise yard, where you could spend between an hour to an hour and a half on weekdays and up to six hours or so on the weekend. Each yard also had one television, though the yard's capacity was about 500 people. At night, you were locked in your cell at 5.50 p.m., and you were allowed to talk until 8 p.m. This was generally quite loud because your method of talking to your neighbors was basically by shouting. After 8 p.m., silence was mandatory and lights out was at 11. The prison radio, which you listened to through headphones that plugged into your cell, ran until midnight. If your behavior was good enough, you could get a hobby permit and order craft supplies, which you could work with in your cell during those hours. You could also work on your own legal defense using information from the prison's small law library that you had to copy by hand, since the law books could not leave the library. If you had the money, you could enroll in a correspondence school and study in your cell. So apart from this physical confinement and all these other things that came along with it, there was also a lot of restriction on information entering and leaving the prison, both personal letters and media. Censors went through all incoming and outgoing mail except for legally protected legal correspondence, and that had been implemented by court order. The censors could reject outgoing mail for a variety of reasons, including talking about prison news, quote, begging for packages or money, talking to the press, and not, quote, sticking to your subject. As you can imagine, that last point was incredibly subjective. Also, you were only allowed to correspond with your immediate family, and the definition of immediate family did not include common law spouses, which meant that more than 20% of the prison's Black and Puerto Rican populations could not write to their spouse. Up until November 25th, 1970, English was the only language allowed for mail entering or leaving the prison. Mail in Spanish was often simply discarded. After this 1970 change in the rules, there was still no Spanish-speaking censor, though, so translating incoming mail became a prison work assignment, with the mail being held for up to two weeks before being handed off for translation. Outgoing mail still had to be in English, so if you only spoke Spanish, you had to find someone from your part of the cell block to translate for you. All radio programs and reading material were also screened and censored, and what was available didn't really align with the prison's demographics. The rules seemed to be a lot more strict uh, for material aimed at a Black demographic and material in Spanish. Radio programs and literature targeted toward a Black audience was generally prohibited, and Spanish language materials and programming, both on the radio and in print, were in really short supply. While the prison had started to loosen up some of the censorship policy for media in the months before the uprising, the review committee was still rejecting a lot of material. All of these rules and procedures were overseen by Attica's civilian and law enforcement staff. By far, the largest job category at Attica Correctional Facility was its custodial staff, the correctional officers and their supervisors. 
Only 8% of the staff had jobs you might describe as intending to help or rehabilitate. That includes teachers, chaplains, medical personnel, counselors, and parole officers. The chaplains did not conduct Muslim religious services, even though there were hundreds of Muslims in Attica. Unlike Attica's incarcerated population, which, as we said, was 54% Black, aside from one Puerto Rican officer, the entire custodial staff was white. Except for those who had served in the military, many of the officers had never actually met or closely interacted with many Black or Puerto Rican people before coming to work in the prison. They mainly lived in very uh, overwhelmingly white rural areas in the prison's vicinity. If you were a correctional officer at Attica, your job was mainly dedicated to maintaining order and security. You were not a social worker or a counselor. In spite of the name change, you were basically still a guard. Your role wasn't really to protect anyone other than yourself, other employees, and visitors from violence or unwanted sexual advances or other harm. Because of the total lack of privacy, the real possibility of unchecked physical or sexual assault, Attica's incarcerated population generally felt completely unsafe, with many arming themselves with makeshift weapons. Many of Attica's officers in 1971 also had very little formal training. About a third of the officers working there that year had been hired between the end of World War II and the 1950s, when the only training was a two-week program described as useless. A new contract implemented in April 1970 also meant that job duties for correctional staff were assigned on the basis of seniority. As a result, the officers with the most experience started selecting themselves for the task that had the least actual contact with incarcerated men. That left the least experienced staff overwhelmingly being the people who were spending the most time with the prison's population. If you worked as an officer, it's also likely that you thought of your job as something of a dead end. Although correctional officers had a defined process for promotions and advancement, being promoted typically involved being transferred to another prison elsewhere in the state. Moving stipends were generally not enough to cover relocating a whole family, so transferred officers usually tried to wait it out until a position opened up at a prison near their home. There was a trend of only applying for promotion if you were willing to be separated from your family, possibly for years. Running through this whole interlocking system of incarcerated men and the the custodial staff responsible for them was a heavy thread of racism. There was a clear breakdown in who had the good jobs and who had the bad ones. For example, only 37% of the prison's population was white, but the most prestigious jobs with the most side benefits and the most privileges were overwhelmingly staffed with white men. By comparison, more than two-thirds of the men on the grading crew and in the metal shop, two of the least desirable jobs in the prison, were black or Spanish-speaking, even though they made up 54% and 9% of the population, respectively. There were only a couple of desirable jobs, like the laundry, that had a predominantly black workforce. Rules were also selectively enforced in a way that seemed racially prejudiced. For example, officers frequently confiscated submersible heaters known as droppers, which were used to illicitly heat up food bought from the commissary from black people, while looking the other way when white men had the same devices. The same trend generally held true for things like whose cells got searched for contraband and other rule enforcement. 
Officers also actively discouraged friendships between Attica's black and white populations, implying, for example, that a white person could expect to have his privileges revoked if he kept socializing with, quote, coloreds, and referring to white people who had black friends with a racial slur that we are not going to repeat here. There was, of course, racial prejudice among the incarcerated population as well, which went beyond things that were very obvious, like slurs or fighting or just general attitudes. Although there was no formal segregation in place in Attica in 1971, the population tended to segregate itself at meals and in the exercise yard, with the custodial staff either tacitly or explicitly encouraging this segregation. So that was the general atmosphere at Attica in 1971. The prison was infused with racism at essentially every level. Incarcerated men were cynical about the justice system and distrustful of the custodial staff, who in turn feared, looked down on, and actively despised them. And it all played out in a setting full of relentlessly dehumanizing policies and practices. In addition to all these dynamics in the years just before the uprising, a couple of specific events led to even more tensions. And we will talk about them after another brief word from a sponsor. I'm going to say words that cause panic. The holidays are coming. Ah! It always makes my stomach churn. There's so much that you have to deal with if you're trying to ship things and go to the post office. There's traffic and parking and it's packed. There's lots of people trying to mail their holiday parcels. So uh, use stamps.com instead. Bypass all of that stuff. Uh, with stamps.com, you can avoid all of that hassle of going to the post office during the busy and cranky puss holiday season. Everything you would do at the post office, you can do right there at your own desk. That includes buying and printing official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer. You can print postage for any letter or package, so no matter what crazy thing you're shipping as a gift, you can do it the instant you need it, and then you just hand that off to your awesome mail carrier. It is easy and convenient. So... Right now, you can sign up for Stamps.com using our special promo code, which is STUFF, and get a special offer, including a four-week trial and a $110 bonus offer, which gets you some postage and a digital scale. So don't wait. Go to Stamps.com, and before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in STUFF. That's Stamps.com, and enter STUFF. In the years just before the uprising at Attica, two competing factors caused tensions and frustrations to escalate there even further. The first was a shift in its incarcerated population. More than 80% of the people incarcerated in Attica in 1971 had arrived in 1965 or later. These new arrivals tended to be younger and more politically aware and active, and as a general rule, a lot more resistant to authority than their predecessors, something that the custodial staff was not really used to or prepared for. Many had been born in the years immediately after Brown versus Board and had lived through violent backlash against integration and the civil rights movement, as well as the activism and social unrest of the 60s. Some were active participants in nationalist organizations like the Black Panthers and the Young Lords. Many of these newer arrivals, especially newer Black arrivals, took on the role of educating other incarcerated men about civil rights, political activism, and sociology, even organizing an unofficial sociology class in 1971. 
They also advocated for improvements to the prison. For example, on July 2nd of 1971, a group calling itself the Attica Liberation Faction sent the commissioner of the Department of Correctional Services, Russell G. Oswald, a letter and manifesto that that started with just a scathing and pretty radical description of the prison system, including phrases like the fascist concentration camps of modern America. The actual demands that this outlined, though, were incredibly reasonable overall. They were things like legal representation when when appearing before the parole board, consistency in rule enforcement, adequate food, clothing, and hygiene facilities, and adequate medical care. And somewhat ironically, the other increasing source of tensions was a series of somewhat relaxed rules and minor improvements, in part as a result of these newcomers' advocacy. Commissioner Oswald was new to the job, starting on January 1st of 1971. In addition to his experience in the Department of Corrections, he also had experience in social work, and he wanted to reform the prison system to focus on successful rehabilitation instead of just confinement. A lot of the reforms that the Attica Liberation Faction demanded were ones that he had already hoped to do. But, as is often the case, people became really frustrated when the promised reforms were very slow to materialize, and the prison's population, especially the younger men, increasingly doubted that these promises were actually going to be kept And a lot of the custodial staff who I want to stress, a lot of the custodial staff had pointed out that a lot of things happening in the prison were were unfair and were dehumanizing. Like that is not something that was just universally adhered to without question. But a lot of the custodial staff also thought that Oswald's ideas and his policies and the reforms that he wanted to make, along with other court rulings and policy changes that had been taking place at about the same time, they thought all these things were coddling and pandering and were denying them the, the, the authority that they needed to do their jobs. And then one event set the stage for the actual uprising. On August 21st, 1971, officers at San Quentin Prison in California killed activist and author George Jackson during an alleged escape attempt. There continue to be unanswered questions and controversies surrounding Jackson's death, and that could really be a whole other podcast episode on its own. But the conclusion among Attica's incarcerated population was that he had been framed and murdered. A protest followed at Attica, which included a silent fast and a sit-in. This protest was nonviolent, but even so, it was terrifying to the inexperienced custodial staff on duty. The uprising that began on September 9th of 1971 started a little less than three weeks after George Jackson's death, when incarcerated men and officers alike were still really on edge in that aftermath at Attica. And that is what we are going to talk about next time. Hey, Tracy. Yeah. Is your uh, listener mail a little lighter in tone? It is. It's been a very heavy episode. We talked about a lot. We're going to talk about something not nearly so heavy for a second. It's from Amber. Amber says, hello, ladies. Not only did I love hearing about the creepy ghost ships, but this episode was a little shout out to both places I have claimed as hometowns in my life. I grew up in Marion, Massachusetts, which is the town the captain of the Mary Celeste, Benjamin Briggs, was also from. The Historical Society Museum in Marion is basically 75% Mary Celeste information. My other hometown is now Newport, Rhode Island, and have lived here for eight years, living about a mile from Easton's Beach. The locals call it First Beach, since there is a line of beaches around the bend uh, at uh, Aquidneck Island, 
I did not look up how to say that, so I hope I did it right. The story of the seabird kind of makes me laugh, since the the area around the other stretch from First Beach is very cliffy and rocky, so it just makes me think the ship came to shore in a slow-motion way, like the scene from Sideways, where Paul Giamatti and Thomas Hayden Church managed to slowly crash their car into a tree that's basically in the middle of a field. Must have been destiny. You should look into the other historical happenings in Newport since there is so much. Pirates like Thomas Tew, colonists like Anne Hutchinson, the first synagogue in in America, Gilded Age mansions, among many others. I love all of your work. Your topics are so interesting. Thanks for keeping me so entertained, Amber. I wanted to read this for two reasons. Uh, One was to have a little lighter breather for a second at the end of this really heavy episode. Uh, And the other is because I left an entire S out of Easton's Beach every time I put it in that episode. So <laughs> it is Easton's and not Eaton's. Well, so my apologies right. for that. Uh, if you would like to write to us about this or any other podcast, we're at History Podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. We are also on Facebook at Facebook.com slash History and on Twitter at History. Our Tumblr is MissedInHistory.tumblr.com. We're also on Pinterest at Pinterest.com slash History, And our Instagram is History. You can come to our parent company's website, which is HowStuffWorks.com, to find out about all kinds of fascinating information. You can come to our website, which is MissedInHistory.com, to find show notes, about uh, this and every other episode Holly and I have worked on, as well as an archive of every single episode we have ever done. Lots of cool stuff. So you can do all that and a whole lot more at HowStuffWorks.com or MissedInHistory.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. It's Laura Wasser, host of the All's Fair podcast on iHeartRadio. I'm a family law attorney, which is really a euphemism for a divorce attorney, and I've been practicing for over 20 years. I've learned some very interesting things along the way, and I can tell you that when dealing with matters of the heart, rules seldom apply. With advice and anecdotes from many of my friends, some of whom may be celebrities, as well as the best legal, financial, and mental health professionals in the country, our goal is to educate, enlighten, empower, and entertain you on the way to a better understanding of how relationships work. iHeartRadio is number one for podcasts, but don't take our word for it. Find All's Fair with Laura Wasser on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Danny Shapiro, host of the hit podcast, Family Secrets. I hope you'll join us for some incredible conversations about family, identity, and what happens to both when the secrets that have been kept from us and the secrets we keep finally come to light. Listen and subscribe on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.